Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to introduce one of the most versatile actors in radio, Mel Blanc. As you may or may not know, Mel plays several parts on my program. For instance, when I come downstairs in the morning and walk into my den, he looks at me and says, Oh, hello, Polly. Hello. Many times, the Polly had to listen to me take my violin lesson. But Polly never complained because she knew my French violin teacher was also Mel Blanc. No, 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 Monsieur Benny. How many times must I tell you it is not? Da, 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 da. You must slide. Da, da, da. Then every once in a while on my travels, I have to take a train. And at the railroad station, again, you hear Mel Blanc. Train leaving on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Coop. Then sometimes I have to... Bunga. <laughs> yes. Then sometimes I decide not to take the train and go by automobile. And when I get in my car and step on the starter, do you hear the motor? No, you always hear Mel Blanc. Now, Mel, how about saying hello to the folks in your natural voice? Uh, we, 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 uh, well, I... Uh, 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 that is dark, I... I mean, I want to... Uh, well, you know where I am. And so that's how I... Mel, Mel, what's the matter? Huh? <laughs> hey, I forgot what my own voice is like. <laughs> you forgot your own voice? Well, that's silly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mel, all of you. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to this special radio edition of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, coming to you from the YBR studios in Colorado. Today, the program takes you back to the world where only sound reigns supreme, where the imagination fills in the gaps for a picture in your head that is too exhilarating, extravagant, and expensive for any silver screen, the world of radio. Today, the theater of the mind will pay tribute to its finest thespian, a genius with vocal cords as complicated as Caruso, and with a penchant for hiccups that W.C. Fields himself could not conceive of on any bender. The world proclaimed Lon Chaney as the man of a thousand faces, but surely he would have been taken aback by the vocal that ranged in the thousands or more by Mr. Mel Blank. 
Radio's ultimate king of the voices, Blank ran the gamut for many a year before finally being handed the keys to his own show. Located in the cozy Mel Blank fix-it shop, where the worries of Mel and his relationship troubles were only as audacious as the many voices that would complement each wacky adventure in the pursuit of love with his sweetheart Betty, avoiding the wrath of her father, Mr. Colby, and wrangling together his stuttering but lovable employee, Zookie. That's right, folks. Today we will tune in to the radio of yesteryear for an episode of the Mel Blank Show. Listen to the program and then stay tuned for a salute to the man with a thousand voices to delight the earbuds. From Hollywood, Colgate Tooth Powder for a breath that's sweet and teeth that sparkle presents the Mel Blank Show with Mary Jane Croft, Joe Kearns, Hans Conried, Earl Ross, the sportsman, Victor Miller and his orchestra, and Mel Blank, the creator of the voice of Bugs Bunny. What's up, Doc? Playing his new character, Zookie. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Everybody, 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 everybody. Hi. And starring, starring himself in person, Mel Blank. Good evening, folks. little town, and in almost every house, prospective father-in-laws were bidding cheery goodbyes to courting swains. In the Anderson house, Mr. Anderson was saying, good night, Joe. Good night, Mr. Anderson. And in the Brown household, Mr. Brown was saying, good night, Sam. Good night, Mr. Brown. And in the Colby house, where Mel Blank spent the evening courting his girl, Betty, Betty's father, Mr. Colby, was saying, get out of here and never come back again. <laughs> so the next morning we find Mel sitting, uh, or standing, in his fix-it shop, talking to Betty's kid brother, Tommy. You know, Tommy, I can't figure your father out. What do you mean, Mel? Well, I don't know whether he likes me or not. Last night he threw me out of the house, and yet the night before he said, Mel, go out and take my car. He even escorted me to the driver's seat and started the motor, waved goodbye, and said, Mel, run her all night. Well, what's wrong with that? In a locked garage? <laughs> Doesn't look right. Well, it's your own fault, Mel. You act too much like a weakling. I'm a weakling? Your father's the one who's a weakling. Why, yesterday he was strangling me for ten minutes before he finally let go of my throat. Well, that's because he thought you were dead. <laughs> well, I fooled him. Blue is my natural color. <laughs> Uh, Mel, why don't you use a different approach to my old man? Stop walking in on your hands and knees. Why don't you be pleasant? Crack a few jokes. Say, that's a great idea, Tommy. After all, I'm a natural-born comedian. Listen to this great joke, kid. 
It seems George Washington's father bought him a little hatchet. And that night, little George, instead of chopping down a cherry tree, sneaked into his father's room and tried to take a chip off the old block. (laughs) You get a chip off the old block. Hatchet, hatchet. Hatchet yourself. You laid it. (laughs) It's a fine way to talk to your prospective brother-in-law. Don't forget, someday I'll marry your sister, Betty, and then, who knows, you may even have a little nephew that looks just like me. So I'll be a monkey's uncle. (laughs) Oh, now, stop kidding yourself, Mel. You'll never marry my sister as long as my father hates you like he does. Yeah, that's what you think. Oh, you better go, Tommy. Here comes my lodge president, Mr. Cushing. He's a very important guy. Oh, is that the lodge Pop is trying to get into? The loyal order of benevolent zebras? Yeah. Well, greeting, Brother Zebra. Greetings, mighty potentate. Ugga, ugga, boo, ugga, boo, boo, ugga. Uh, so long, Tommy. This is all secret lodge business. Yeah, I get it. Ugga, ugga, boo. <laughs> What's such a secret? I said that before I could talk. <laughs> well, I just came around to remind you about the important meeting tonight, Mel. <laughs> Looks like we're about to get that priority to build a new lodge auditorium. Gee, I thought there were a lot of people ahead of us. Well, the top priority went to the pool hall. <laughs> then came the saloon and then the bowling alley. We're ahead of only one person. Who's that? A veteran who wants to build a house. (laughs) And another thing, Mel, we're voting on Colby's application for membership. I thought Betty's father was voted in last year. Well, he didn't get quite enough votes, so we declared him a zebra without stripes. Well, what's that? A jackass. (laughs) Well, I sure would like to be there to vote for him. But I've got something more important. i got to go up to Mr. Colby's house and square myself with him. Why, are you in trouble with Colby again? <laughs> What'd you do this time to make him mad? Well, last night Mr. Colby finally got delivery on his new 1946 console radio. You should have seen it. They delivered it in a beautiful plastic crate. In fact, it was so beautiful it got me all confused. Well, what did you do? I threw out the radio and plugged in the crate. <laughs> so that's why he tossed you out of the house again, huh? Yeah. I've been tossed on the lawn so much, I'm beginning to feel like the afternoon paper. Gee, if I only knew what to do to make Mr. Colby like me, I can't even get near him. Well, Mel, why don't you send your assistant, Zuki, over? You let him uh, deliver a box of candy and attach a personal note. Nothing better. Hey, that's a good idea. Thank you, mighty potentate. Well, anything to help a brother zebra, you know. So long, Mel. Oh, careful, man. You slipped up on that password. Well, what do you mean? You uggered when you should have booed. <laughs> now to get a box of candy and write a little note. Boy, this is great. I can just see Zuki giving it to Mr. Colby now. <laughs> Okay, what brings you here? Oh, hello, Mr. Colby. Mel sent me over with this uh, be, uh, be box of candy. Oh, huh. That nincompoop Mel is trying to get in good with me. Whoa. Two pounds of assorted fruits and nuts. And a note from him, too. Yeah, it's a poem. I'll read it to you. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Uh, that's why I send these fruits and enemy, 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 and, and nuts to you. <laughs> oh, Betty, Betty. Yes. <laughs> Look what Mel sent over. Oh, gee. 
Oh, that's nice. Oh, hello, Zuki. Hello, Betty. Zuki, Mel must have spent a lot of money on this candy. Well, he, he took it out of the bedang. Uh, bedang uh, you see, he, he, he traded in his, in his accordion. Uh, he, he, he collected some money. Uh, he cut my salary. Well, the candy's nice, but I don't know whether I ought to forgive Mel for what he did to my new radio. I got a repairman coming in to fix the radio, and it's costing me $50. Daddy, why don't you give Mel another chance? Well, I don't want him near that radio. Tonight, my favorite program is on, and I want to hear it. Oh, but Mel could fix your radio. He, he fixed the Anderson radio, and, and now it brings in all the pro... pro, pro uh, you can get Africa... Af, you can get... You can get Rush... It's dead as a doornail. However, I can't overlook the fact that Mel did make a peace offering. So, Zuki, you may tell Mel he can come over here tonight to see Betty. But he's got to keep his hands off the radio. Oh, I'll promise for Mel, Father. Zuki, now you run back to the fix-it shop and tell Mel. Oh, okay. Oh, this is swell. When I tell Mel, why, he'll be so happy he'll take me in his arms and he'll hug and he'll kiss... Hey, Betty, you better go. seldom asked to date up double. Don't let a breath of trouble, I mean unpleasing breath, hurt your popularity. Thousands who don't even suspect it are victims of unpleasing breath. So be on your guard. Do this. Brush your teeth night and morning and before every date with Colgate Tooth Powder. For Colgate Tooth Powder cleans your breath as it cleans your teeth. Yes, scientific tests have definitely proved that in seven cases out of ten, Colgate Tooth Powder instantly stops unpleasing breath that originates in the mouth. What's more, no dentifrice at any price cleans your teeth more quickly and thoroughly than Colgate Tooth Powder. Remember to buy it first thing. And remember the name, Colgate Tooth Powder, with the accent on powder. Don't take a chance with your romance. Use Colgate Tooth Powder. Now back to Victor Miller and the sportsman doing five minutes more. Well, it 
the gift of a two-pound box of nuts and fruits, Mel had made Mr. Colby forget the fact that he almost ruined Mr. Colby's brand-new 1946 console radio. So what was a scene of terror last night has turned into a meeting of jolly fellowship tonight as we once again find Mel in the Colby home. Try this one, Mr. Colby. It's a liquid cherry. Oh, no, Mel. I know a caramel when I see one. Uh-uh. It's a liquid cherry, Mr. Colby. Don't tell me. I know it's a caramel. Here, I'll squeeze it. <laughs> well, with a little whipped cream on your head, you'd look just like a Sunday. <laughs> uh, you know, Mr. Colby, that's a wonderful radio you got there. Yes, and I've waited five years for it. I can hardly wait for the repairman to come and hook it up. Gosh, it's a beauty. Eight push buttons, and all you have to do is press it like little... <laughs> Mr. Colby, get your hands off my throat! Well, you keep your hands off that radio! Oh, but Mr. Colby, I'm the handiest man in this town. Even when I was a kid, they called me Kid Fix-It. I'll never forget when I was ten, there was a gas leak in my neighbor's house. Right away, they called me. So I went down the cellar looking for that gas leak with a candle, a box of matches, and a cigarette lighter. <laughs> I'll bet they threw you out of the house. What house? <laughs> uh, but no kidding, I can really fix that radio. Oh, hello, Mel. Hi, Betty. Daddy, are you getting angry again? No, but your boyfriend had better stop his stupid bragging. He's just proving what I've always said. His head is full of hot air. Father, that's not fair. Everyone in town is saying that his head is full of hot air. But believe me, there's nothing in it. <laughs> Father, Mel is never going to get anywhere unless someone gives him a chance. And who else should give him a chance but those closest to him? That's right, Mr. Colby. And after all, I'm going to marry your daughter. You're going to marry my daughter. You ever thought about me? Yes, but Betty's much prettier. <laughs> but Betty, Mel can't support you. You need the necessities of life. How will you get them? We'll charge them. All right, all right, you'll charge them. One month, two months, three months. And then what will you do? We'll move to another neighborhood and start all over again. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? Why? I'd have to be an idiot to let you marry my daughter. Thank you for your consent. Oh, I had enough of this. I'm going to... Oh, look, Mr. Colby, I've taken all I can from you. Oh, really? What are you going to do about it? How would you like to step outside? That suits me fine. Come on. Okay. Well, Betty, now that we're alone... <laughs> I think that I ought to... What would you say, Mr. Colby? Father, oh. control yourself. You can't strike Mel. After all, he soon may be your own lodge brother. Well, oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I was supposed to run down to the meeting and see if they'd voted me in. Oh, I'm late already. All right, Betty, you stay here and watch Mel. Now, don't you let him touch that radio. The repairman ought to be here any minute. Now, now. don't you worry about it. Goodbye, Father. Well, goodbye, Betty. Aren't you going to say goodbye to Mel? <laughs> you know, there's one thing that worries me, Betty. With your father hating me so much, you're liable to begin to hate me, too. Oh, no, darling. I'll always love you. Even though I don't know exactly why. After all, you're, you're not handsome. You're not intelligent. You're not, you're not successful. You're not... Please, Betty, this could go on all night. <laughs> Well, let's forget about your father for a minute, darling. We're all alone now, and I, I have a much more important question to ask you. Oh, Mel. Oh, this is so sudden. Oh, Betty. Yes, Mel? Betty, I... Go on, Mel. Ask me that question. All right. Betty, can I fix your father's radio? <laughs> Mel, you stay 
away from that radio. No, this is my big chance to show off to your father. But, Mel, are you sure you know what you're doing? Betty, how can I go wrong? Here's the book of instructions. I'll start right from the beginning. It says, follow the instructions in this booklet very carefully, as this radio represents the result of 102 years of extensive electronic research and can be ruined in five minutes by a jerk like you. (laughs) Betty, your father wrote in this book. Ah, who needs this book anyway? Betty, bring me a hammer and a corkscrew. Oh, just a minute. It's the repairman. Oh, we don't need him. Send him away. But... The radio's all fixed. I'm sorry you had to come. But... (laughs) Is everything all right, Mel? Sure, Betty. We're all set. But, Mel, there's a tube left over. Well, let's not waste it. Screw it into the chandelier. (laughs) Well, let's go. Turn the knob, Betty. Nothing's happening. Well, you've got to give the set a chance to warm up. You see, the tubes are beginning to light up. See, it's getting nice and warm. Hmm. Now the wires are beginning to light up. <laughs> hey, now the set is beginning to light up. Shall I call the mechanic? Call the fire department. Oh, don't be silly. I'll pull out the plug. Oh, gosh, you've ruined the radio. Oh, Betty, this is the darkest moment of my life. Well, it's the same for me, Mel. Well, you're a little better off. I left my life insurance policy in your name. Uh, oh, Mel, here comes Father. Why don't you try to get away? Oh, it's too late. Oh, wait a minute. Why should I die without a struggle? I got an idea. I'm a born actor. What are you thinking of, Mel? I'll get in back of the radio set and act. Whatever your father tunes in, I'll do. Oh, Mel, that's ridiculous. Well, sure, I could do it. I'll hop, I'll hop in back of the set right now. Oh, Father, uh, we, uh, I didn't expect you back so soon. Well, I haven't finished voting at the lodge yet, so I came back. Uh, where's Mel? Well, he's in back of the... Uh, he's... Uh, went back. Oh, went back. That's good. Well, Benny, I just saw the mechanic's truck pull away from the house. Now I can listen to my radio. Oh, but Daddy... I step aside, Benny. It's time for my favorite program, the Movie Guild Playhouse. And tonight they have two big stars. I'll turn it on. Oh, Sherry, I love you. I love you. I love you. Oh, Pepe, do you rally? Rally, do you? Do you rally? Oh, Sherry, you know I do, I do, I do. Rally, I'm so glad you do. Rally, I am. Rally. This is dreadful. I'm going to write to the Movie Guild Playhouse people. Address all letters to 160 South Vista Street. This is unbelievable. i got to get some music. Oh, yes, the Philharmonic is on. The Philharmonic? Oh, but Daddy, he can. I'll just push the button here. And now the house lights dim in Carnegie Hall. The spotlight picks up the conductor as he mounts the podium. And now the orchestra plays the overture from Tristan and Asoli. <laughs> Good heavens. I've never heard the Philharmonic play like that. Now the Philharmonic continues with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Oh, well, maybe this will be a little better. (laughs) This is impossible. I'll switch back to the movie guild. Peppy, I do love you. I do, Rally. I do, too. Do, too. Do, too. Oh, it's getting worse all the time. I'll turn back to the Philharmonic. Oh, no! 
wrong with this radio? Oh, maybe I'll have better luck on the short wave. Kaslovich Matuka, Daronik, Giboya, Jifinia, leading by 50,000 votes. Kovniak, Bianite, Lubia, 16, UCLA, Nyati. Panya, Bruka, Ichi, Adoma, Panya, Lukia, Eastern Columbia, Broadway at night. Something is wrong with this radio. Father, I'll... I'll just feel around in the back of the set. Now, let me... Uh, uh, Betty. Yes, Father? One of these tubes has hair on it. <laughs> Wait just a minute. I look behind the set. Mel Blank. What have you got to say for yourself? <laughs> oh! Mel Blank, I'm going to take you and break every bone in... Uh, uh, oh, oh, it's Mr. Cushing. Oh, come in, sit down. I'll be through in just a minute. Your greetings, Mel. Mr. Colby, why are you standing on Mel's head? <laughs> I'm not standing on his head. I'm jumping up and down. <laughs> well, you'd better stop, because the lodge is deadlocked. Twelve for you and twelve against you. And Mel has the deciding vote. He has? I mean, uh... He has? Well, Mel, my son. Come on, get up off the floor. Are you, uh, going to vote for me? Well, get your foot out of my mouth first, Mr. Colby. Oh, <laughs> Mel, my boy, tell me, am I in the lodge? Mr. Cushing, mm. let me whisper my decision in your ear. Well, am I in? Mr. Colby, allow me to be the first to say... Ugga, ugga, boo, ugga, boo, boo, ugga. Now, my boy! Ugga, ugga, boo, ugga, boo, 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 ugga. Now, Blank will be back in just a minute. Use Colgate tooth powder, keep smiling just right. Use it each morning and use it each night. Don't take a chance with your romance. Use Colgate tooth powder. A breath of trouble, I mean unpleasing breath, can lose you friends and alienate people. So ask yourself if you could have this social handicap. Best thing to do is to guard against it. Brush your teeth night and morning and before every date with Colgate Tooth Powder. For Colgate Tooth Powder cleans your breath as it cleans your teeth. Yes, scientific tests have definitely proved that in seven cases out of ten, Colgate Tooth Powder instantly stops unpleasing breath that originates in the mouth. What's more, no dentifrice at any price cleans your teeth more quickly and thoroughly than Colgate Tooth Powder. Remember to buy it first thing. And remember the name Colgate Tooth Powder with the accent on powder. Don't take a chance with your romance. Use Colgate tooth powder. And this is Mel Blank saying thanks for listening. Good night and that's all, folks. Easton reminding you that Colgate Tooth Powder for a breath that's sweet and teeth that sparkle brings you the Mel Blanc Show every Tuesday at this time. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday night for more fun with Mel and the people you'll meet in Mel Blanc's Fix-It Shop.
Say hello to Halo Shampoo for naturally bright and beautiful hair. Remember, even finest soaps and soap shampoos hide the natural luster of your hair with dulling soap film. But Halo Shampoo contains no soap, therefore leaves no dulling soap film. Even in hardest water, Halo makes oceans of rich, fragrant lather, quickly banishes loose dandruff and dirt. Halo needs no lemon or vinegar rinse. Say hello to Halo and goodbye to dulling soap film. Get Halo Shampoo at any cosmetic counter. Now, wasn't that a wonderful program, folks? I'm sure that Mel was in a fix when Mr. Colby discovered he was doing all those voices in his broken radio, but the magic of yesteryear does seem to give us the ending we need until next week, and at least Mr. Colby is now a true zebra. Now on to the talk of the day. We have just heard but a small sampling of Mel's overall radio work, but a larger fraction of his own solo work, for the Mel Blank show would not run as long as the many endeavors Blank triumphed in from his work with Jack Benny all the way into some of the picture business that he was involved in, featuring an array of characters with names so ridiculous that the public doesn't even remember them today. I mean, Daffy Duck? Who on earth would remember a name like that when they have a TikTok account? But, all kidding aside... Blank's solo outing does remain a highlight and delight for fans of old-time radio, and we have one of those enthusiasts on hand to help us celebrate a brief but beautiful period in Mel Blank's radio career. He is a podcaster whose work on old-time review and a Brit Talks vintage television has brought further exposure to the works of yesterday from the perspective of today that gives the listener a journey into the inner workings of a fan of media past. And today, he and I shall reminisce fondly on the man who could make himself sound like the grandest electric organ. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Jamie Dyer. Thank you very much, Zach. Aga, aga, boo, aga, boo, boo, aga. <laughs> aga, boo, aga, boo, aga, boo, boo, aga. <laughs> the, the, this, is, uh, this is interesting um, having you aboard because um, we have, this is the first time we've talked to each other. So, so it seems like anytime I do a Jack Benny episode, unless it's people I know directly, like I'm meeting them for the first time technically, but you and I connected over the Jack Benny convention. You were attending and you were having a blast throughout everything <laughs> over the course of a two-day period. Um, and in getting to know you through your work on your show, you interviewed one of our guests, Kathy Fuller-Seeley, and you, uh, you, you, you show an enthusiasm for vintage television that I, I must confess, it, it makes me want to go back to vintage television a little bit more often because I don't, I tend to stick to radio or film. Um, but uh, the, the amount of passion and work that you put into it, you've even been bringing up figures in history that I don't think many people remember, like um, like Goodman Ace, uh, who is a figure that I only know really through his connection with Jack. Um, so I want to have the Ballyhoo listeners get to know you a little bit more, Jamie. How did you f- discover your love of old-time radio? Wow. I mean, uh, let's see. So uh, I, I'm unsure whether you mentioned it in your thing, because I'm blown away by everything you're saying there. But uh, <laughs> uh, I am obviously I, I'm in the UK. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, you are. You are the among the many UK guests we've had on here. I don't know if this is a secret British podcast. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- that kind of um, that kind of makes uh, what you were saying there about me mentioning Goodman Ace and stuff 
no one in the UK knows who those people are. So uh, it's yeah. kind of uh, amazing. But um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I am a podcaster. I do many different things, including uh, old time review, as you mentioned. And really, my love affair with it started in 2012, when I just finished university. I, funnily enough, I was studying film at university. <laughs> and I kind of was was in a, a crossroads where I was like, well, to be honest, I'm not sure that I'm that bothered about film anymore. And, I, and I'm sorry mm. if that's kind of a bad thing to say on this podcast, but... Uh, no, no, I get tired of film all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'd been doing sort of community radio for about four years up to that point, And it was mainly music radio. And I just started searching one day because I've always loved Mel Blanc. And it's funny how the journey started with him. And I just happened to notice oh, he did something called The Mel Blanc Show, which obviously you've just played an episode mm -hmm. of... And I listened through and it blew my mind because I was like, I had no idea that radio of this kind existed. I mean, we have uh, BBC Radio 4 here, but I'd never really listened to any of that. I was mainly exposed to music radio because that was the area that I was in. And then that mm -hmm. took me to, to Jack, uh, then to Fibber McGee and Molly and all of those. And to be honest... Um, I didn't get a lot of the stuff after after Mel. Like I listened to a couple of episodes of Jack, including uh, an episode he did with Lauren Bacall, and mm -hmm. I was just like, I don't get it. Uh, it's it's not <laughs> it's not doing anything to me. You know, I I don't particularly. Uh, I, there's nothing going on here for me, and so. I started looking around and someone said, oh, you need to buy uh, a DAB radio because there's this thing in Britain called Radio 4 Extra that plays old time radio from Britain, like Hancock's Half Hour, Beyond Our Ken, Round the Horn, Goon Show, that type of thing. So I listened, yeah. but I was like, it's not the Mel Blanc show. Uh, so for a <laughs> long time. Uh, I held everything up to the esteem of the, the Mel Blanc show, which is funny. And then about, Three years later, um, I I don't know, I, I'd sort of begun to research old time radio a bit more. And my wife, then girlfriend, bought me the Sunday Nights at Seven Jack Benny autobiography by his... By, G by Joan, by yeah, his daughter, who, yeah. recent, who recently passed away. Yeah. And that blew my mind. And I went mm. on a humongous Benny binge. I think I spent about six months just binging the whole thing. And there was a moment when I moved into um, a, a new apartment, a new flat, as we call it here in Britain, uh, mm -hmm. with my then girlfriend. And we didn't have TV or internet for months, but I had these episodes of the Jack Benny program and lots of other things like Great Gildersleeve and, you know, things like that. So I just listened to those every night among my DVD collection, you know. And so I, I just became a massive fan from that moment. Mm. That's interesting to hear how that journey kicks off because it's not too dissimilar from... Uh, a lot of people with their first Benny exposure is that it doesn't hit them right away. Um, and I know we're here to talk about Blank, but I think Benny is important to this discussion because he is so tied into Mel. And 
you know, when we had Laura on, she told the story about how like she her first exposure to Jack was nonplussed. And it wasn't until she saw the mouse that Jack built, the theatrical short that he did for Warner Brothers, where Mel Blanc's in it, but not the way he would normally be in a Warner Brothers cartoon um, and that she started latching on to him. And, it, you know, like from my from my own end, my love of Benny kind of had to grow steadily. But like my first exposure to him was. I was intrigued by his character, but I was listening to an episode with Groucho Marx, so the, the the concentration is on Groucho and not on Jack and Rochester. And like the closest that I had to connection of any other kind was, oh, the band leader sounds like the voice of Baloo. And then, and then you put those dots together and it just blows your mind. Um, but being in the UK, I was like intrigued in communicating with you because it's not that I don't think that Benny or old time radio comedy of this ilk isn't exposed out there. But I do. I was wondering if there was some form of cultural disconnect at any point with uh, the way the shows run, because uh, the the secret history of Hollywood and Attaboy Clarence shows prove that it's not necessarily the case. But I, I was wondering when it comes to Benny and even Mel Blanc, how that humor translated across across continents. And it seems like it worked for you pretty OK. I think the Benny stuff trans. I mean, let, let's be honest. I, I think the, the biggest exposure here in the UK to Mel Blanc would have been Warner Brothers cartoons and growing up in the 90s. They were on all the time. You know, people saw them as these legendary things. And he was the guy most recognized for for doing those voices they translated okay i I think from my own perspective uh benny on the other hand i think it was 50 50 i think uh, (laughs) i think it was 50 50 i mean i looked up actually in in preparation for this the last time that the benny program on tv was played in this country and i think it was about 1989 um which (laughs) you know which sounds crazy i i might you know that's on the bbc yeah uh, if they might have played it on some digital channel somewhere but on actual terrestrial television it was like the late 80s the last time a radio episode was played was actually a few months ago when suddenly after 25 years they they <laughs> decide to dig out a, a selection of of benny radio shows from the golden age uh, but mm-hmm. I, I think, judging by what I see, I think he went over okay, Benny. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think over time, people have just forgotten that he was there. He gets the odd mention in like Palladium documentaries. Uh, but other than that, he's nothing more than a name. Yeah, it's I actually that that holds water with all the back interviews that I've been listening to and or watching. Because he did an interview with David Frost near the end of his life, um, which is a I, I think is actually a great watch. It seems like he's not he's a little more relaxed and I don't know exactly what David Frost is bringing out of him in that same regard as what Carson did. But I think it's when whenever he was on Carson, it was he was he was with his friend. And so they're they're more concerned about joking with each other than than a serious interview. But um, his show at the Palladium is like a big is a big fixture in a, a good run of his radio shows because it's with Jack being vainglorious, the the whole capture is like, well, you know, I played the Palladium and I went big over there and, you know, the King and the Queen loved it. And that, and that, that whole thread has gone through. And I do think that there, there was a joke at some point near the end, just before he passed away, 
where he talked about doing a show in the UK and Watergate was underway and he didn't want to touch Watergate, but he wanted to figure out a way to make a joke about Watergate without mentioning Watergate. Um, if I if I remember the punchline of the joke, ladies and gentlemen, I will insert a, a an addendum here. But the bottom line is is that like he when he moved over to another country to do his show, it seemed like he sort of adapted his own uh, material a little bit to not make it seem so isolating. Um, but that's at least for the live shows. I'd be honest, it's amazing that he started playing that he was playing as as uh, recently as eighty nine because. With the exception of me TV out here, uh, I don't think a uh, a true uh, television channel has really broadcast Jack since the '90s out here, and it makes it makes more sense that he'd be here because of where it was based. But to have the resurrection that it did through the BBC and through the various different ways that Benny has been popping back up in the conversation, it's a testament to know that like that comedy still works. And I got to be honest, in prepping for this episode on Mel, I, I mean, we we have a perception of Mel because of what he meant to our childhoods. I think we all share that in common, no matter what your age is. But listening to his radio material, I got to be I got to be frank. I was like very, very surprised at how many times I was genuinely surprised by the material and the spot on this the material. But what we're, we're, what we're going to talk about today points to the fact that unfortunately it's encroached in a lot of typical fare of the era and that's not its detriment but it is a reason why the show doesn't last as long as it probably could have um but so you already mentioned warner brothers cartoons as your exposure to mel um i'll, I'll ask this and then i can share mine but what if you had to pick one looney tune short subject where it absolutely blows your mind every time you watch it with mel doing his voices what would it be i had a feeling you would ask that and <laughs> i would say it's duck and muck if you know that one Ooh, yeah that that is a good one the staging of it and mel's characterization is just spot on and uh it's it's so far ahead of its time. It's unreal. Like it, it's funny how self-aware it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, it's astounding that it's there's a lot of evidence of meta humor back in this era, but it's not. We don't have a classification for it, and all we have really is breaking the fourth wall. And it's it is one of your first exposures to understanding that there are barriers that can be broken, and cartoons are the best gateway for that. Um, I would agree with that, but. I will always have a fond affection for the great piggy bank robbery mm -hmm. uh, directed by Bob Clampett. Cause Bob Clampett is my go-to director for Looney Tunes and the way he it's, it's a delivery that has always stood with me to this day is well, it's two of them. One is when he's running through the names of the different Dick Tracy villains <laughs> and just, you can hear the different like inflection of each alliterative name, like neon noodle, hammerhead, pussycat puss, <laughs> Batman. Batman is funny. Cause then you just see a bat that looks like a man. Um, and, uh, but the other one is he's walking down the street and he comes across Sherlock Holmes and he says, scram Sherlock. I'm working this side of the street. <laughs> and he just smacks Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things that definitively 
like set set the tone for what Looney Tunes would be in my life. Um, but that is our introduction to him more often than not. It's through those cartoons, which thankfully still play. Um, and I don't say that within the grounds of people are trying to take them away. It's more just like it's amazing how well these cartoons still hold up that Cartoon Network over here can rebroadcast them ad nauseum or that HBO Max put a bunch of them up right before the launch of the new Looney Tunes cartoons. Um, but, you know, when we talk about Mel Blanc, it's it would be hard to believe that he started off in radio way before we even knew about him um, um, in this country, let alone anywhere. Um, but I think we should give Mel a proper backstory. He is born Melvin Jerome Blank on May 30th, 1908 in San Francisco to Russian immigrant Eva and New York-born Russian Jewish descendant Frederick Blank. Uh, Blank was spelled B-L-A-N-K. Um, and one of the reasons why that name changed, according to Mel himself, was that at the age of 16, uh, one of his teachers told him that he would never get respect or have any posterity in life if his name was blank. So he removed the K and replaced it with a C <laughs> to make it sound fancier. Um, and from the age of 10, he started doing voices for his classmates. He had grown an affection for dialect and delivery and vocal uh, and vocal characterizations. He says in one interview that uh, the kids would laugh and the teachers would laugh and then they would give me bad marks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it it's you'd think, well, maybe this is a kid who's not going to get through all the primary school, but he graduated high school in Portland, Oregon. And what's more was uh, cemented by the age of 19 as one of the youngest refined and precise orchestra leaders of the era. Um, running his own band, which toured amongst other places, Oregon, Washington, and Northern California. And that right there, I think, gives you an indication of what Mel's ability was with vocalization if he understands music. Um, and I'm not a music major by any stretch, <laughs> uh, but it seems to me that like a lot of what we hear in Mel's vocalizations has a rhythm to it um, that isn't... Um, that it, it's not something that can be repeated unless somebody knows how the way music works. Um, it's just something that connects the two of them. It's like, and it's culminated in what's opera doc in a lot of respects, because he, you have to follow that guideline. Um, and he went on to also do vaudeville shtick in addition to his band leader uh, persona. And by the time he makes it out to Hollywood, the first time, um, he, he's already had radio success in Portland with the Hoot Owls, where he would perform a variety of characters. His early radio work is a testing ground. He's just using this as an excuse to do these voices, which is frankly why this show even fucking exists. <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's just an excuse for a vanity project for me, Jamie. I'm, I'm, I'm no less, I'm no less vainglorious. Um, but uh, he, eventually tries to make it out to LA the first time, but he gets amidst him trying to find work. He meets his future wife, Estelle Rosenbaum. They marry a year later. They go back to Portland, Oregon, and they start doing a show called cobweb and nuts, which is very similar to the hoot owl uh, program, according to historical resources where 
Mel Blanc would do a variety of characters, and Estelle herself would do a variety of female characters and also assist with the music. So they were just, it's kind of like podcasting in a lot of respects. Like I know I made a joke about it, but like what you and I do, like we're, we're literally doing this nuts and bolts indie style. Like we don't have the backing of a CBS or an NBC, which we wouldn't because they don't do audible entertainment anymore. (laughs) But, uh, and according to, uh, and and via your most recent, uh, Brit, Brit talks of vintage television, they're not even in the game of respecting their material anymore and trying to subjugate it onto Paramount plus (laughs) not spread it out which i agree with you like that's what they're doing and they need to cut that out because that doesn't give accessibility to um to people who may not be able to have paramount plus um and it's limiting but regardless they go back to portland to do this show but even though they are making a bit of a modest success of this mel's basically thinking i should just give this up and find a more stable job and estelle pushes him on and says, you need to go back to LA and try again. He goes back to LA and starts knocking on the door of every radio show in town and on the door of Warner brothers. Um, By 1935, he starts making the rounds in radio shows of the era um, on low level basis. Like Johnny Murray and Joe Penner were among the earliest examples that I were able to find. Um, And Joe Penner is a person that, I don't think anybody knows today um, because he fizzled out pretty quickly um, by the time 1936 rolled around. But his catchphrase of want to buy a duck was the talk of the town for for a good hot seven to eight months. (laughs) Um, But Benny reused Penner a lot before his death. Um, He he brought him on in different capacities in side roles Um, and blank knocking on the door at Warner brothers animation is actually kind of key to how we get something like the Mel Blanc show, because a lot of voices that you hear on the Mel Blanc show are very consistent with what he did with the Warner brothers group. Um, not the least of which is Zookie, which they, they, they will get to it, but they bill it as a new character (laughs) in in the show. And I'm like, this is not new, but okay, fine. I, I mean, I get, I guess it technically is. Um, but he would knock on the door, in his own words, he said, I had seen many of the cartoons and heard some of the voices and thought, geez, they are missing out on a lot. These voices are pretty bad. Um, now, Norman Spencer was originally heading the dialogue department at Warner Brothers. And at the time, Mel would go to Warner Brothers offices biweekly and beg for a job, but no dice. Um, two weeks before Christmas, and I couldn't narrow down the year if it was 36 or 37, but I would say it was probably 36 because Mel Blank comes to the door once again to ask for work and his fate would have it Treg Brown, the legendary sound effects man for the Schlesinger cartoons uh, unit of Warner brothers had replaced Spencer and they are both musicians. Treg Brown was a started off as a musician. So there is a kindred spirit there. Uh, Blank told him that I've been trying to get a job here for, for, for the last year. And I want to do voices for you guys. And Treg said, well, show me what you can do. Mel basically auditioned for him among the things that, it was reported that he auditioned with for Treg was the crazy news reporter character that carried on a bunch of dialects. And additionally his drunk hiccuping character, which is very key to his first Warner brothers cartoon appearance. Um, he then did an audition for the ra- remainder of the directors and a lot of his whoops and sound of like sounds were recorded and used in Warner brothers cartoons before he even got a speaking part. 
and his first big speaking part would come at the hand of Tex Avery in 1937's Picador Porky, where he plays a drunken bull. Um, and the when you I, I sh- I'll probably lay in a clip right here of what the drunken bull sounds like because I don't know how many people have access to this cartoon unless they can purchase that lovely Porky Pig set that came out a couple of years back. In that clip, you get a sense of the wackiness that he was bringing to the table that nobody else was. It's so much so that Joe Doherty, uh, who was doing the voice of Porky Pig, is replaced by Mel pretty quickly. Um, And, you know, I don't know. I was curious to know, like, how many of the early, early Warner Brothers cartoons were you able to get your hands on um, growing up? Like the early, early black and white ones. Hardly any at all. Um, most of the time, if you did see any, it, they were colorized. Um, mm. I, we'd hardly ever, I, I don't think I ever saw any black and white ones until I started collecting the box sets. Mm. Yeah. The ones that Warner Brothers started putting out where they mm. actually like, they haven't released all of them yet, but they have curated the ones that are, are restorable. Like they, they've curated them pretty damn well. Um, now getting them onto blu-ray is kind of difficult because the market doesn't really exist for it anymore but if you can get those looney tunes golden age collections volumes one through six those are essential things to have in your library if you're a looney tunes fan um and they provide a, a, a disclaimer up front about context because it's responsible but <laughs> uh and uh but he arguably he wouldn't find the biggest amount of his fame until a certain 1940 cartoon called A Wild Hare. Um, now at this point, he's already voicing Porky and Daffy Duck. Um, Daffy Duck, by the way, debuted in the first cartoon that Mel did the voice of Porky Pig for, which is uh, Porky's Duck Hunt. And A Wild Hare comes around, and this is not the first time. I, I was trying to narrow this down because the recent Bugs Bunny collection that came out had a documentary about the character and... Noel says in an interview that he was voicing the origin point bugs with the buck teeth, that very pronounced buck teeth early on. And that's why it sounds so different compared to what you get in a wild hare. But in a wild hare, you got an amalgamation of Brooklyn and the Bronx combined with actual carrot chomping on set to get the sound of a carrot chomp. And uh, arguably movie history was born. Uh, not to least which animation history is born because Bugs soars in popularity, gets even more popular during the war because he was a scrappy fighter that the American public certainly could identify with um, taking on the Nazi menace or taking on Japan and Italy. And the this additionally skyrockets Mel. Now, this is where we get into his radio stuff here because... Um, we are both part of the International Jack Benny Fan Club. Uh, 
not a secret that it's the greatest group on the internet, hands down, um, run by the great Laura Leibowitz. But uh, for those who don't know, Laura wrote three volumes of book material that logged each and every episode of Jack's radio and television career. Um, and that was a valuable resource because I was able to track down, at least from her reference, Mel's first appearance on the show. Um, and I was surprised that it actually came from a partial show that like, so it partially exists from June 7th, 1936 in the role of Gensler. Um, and this is prior to Phil Harris coming aboard. So this is like early, like this is the Johnny green years. Um, at this point they do have Kenny Baker. Um, but Mel's true ascendance to this is we're both familiar with a very aggressive polar bear named Carmichael um, in the Benny world. And the first time Carmichael spoke was on March 12th, 1939, courtesy of Mr. Blank. And the having these logs that Laura put together is very valuable because it does narrow down. Um, I, I, I'm sure you've heard, you already know the story, but um, Mel was in the recording one day and the traditional recording for the Maxwell car had busted. And so he went in and started doing the jalopy sounds. And then that's how he started getting the role of the Maxwell on top of Carmichael and his. Now, this is a question that I have. Now you have you gone through the war years of Benny where Mel starts kind of like getting his rise in the show? Yeah. I've noticed that as you listen to Mel progress, he slowly becomes more important when they no longer have access to Alan's um, side characters because Alan, Fred Allen's side characters went on to Jack's show a lot because Fred went off the air for a, a good chunk of time um, in the midst of transitioning from, I think it's Texaco to Lipton uh, to uh, Tenderleaf brand T-balls. Um, and uh, he, he starts off mainly doing the private sad sack kind of deal, which is an extension off of private snafu, which was a series of cartoons that Mel Blanc voiced that were written by Theodore Geisel and directed by legendary Warner brothers animators that were designed to teach soldiers how to not fuck up during wartime. <laughs> and have you ever watched one of these in full? Because I've never watched a full snafu. No, I haven't. I've seen little bits and pieces, but no. They, they sound like just insane. Like they were able to, because they were for the army and not for mass consumption, they were getting away with nudity, sexual out, sexuality jokes. Like it's it sounds insane. And I have, I'm almost hesitant to watch them because I'm just like, I don't know if I want this in my life, but I like the idea it exists. Um and eventually by 1945, 1946, when they start doing the Lucky Strike program, Mel Blanc becomes an even bigger force on the show playing Polly the Parrot. We get the train announcer. We get eventually the uh, the put-upon store clerk, um, which is a both timeless and extremely dark character for its era because of especially where it goes on television because... Well, actually, we'll talk about it in this episode, but there's a joke in the Jack Benny Christmas special on television at the very end that is incredibly dark that I almost got a similar vibe on it from one of the jokes at the top of this episode that we just heard. Um, 
but needless to say, he also was working on other radio shows. Even before he started gaining true prominence on Jack's show, he was playing the Happy Postman um, on Burns and Allen's show, um, where he would go, good morning, Mrs. Burns. <laughs> um, and uh, he was on Abbott and Costello's show as various characters, and he was on Judy Canova's program. And Mel Blanc ended up becoming the busiest person ever as a result of this. Um, now, Noel described that his father was working up to three to four shows in a given day, rushing from studio to studio. That was all in the same block on Hollywood and Vine and Hollywood and Gower. And the, the amount of work that he was doing was, it was stretched to the point where, uh, Keith Scott, who is a voice actor for Rocky and Bullwinkle, had related that he started consolidating the recordings of Warner Brothers cartoons for a Tuesday and then concentrated on those four major shows that have him contracted in addition to anywhere else he was needed. Uh, but Noel did say he was always home for dinner. So he was a man who knew the, the value of family as well as the value of his career. Um, now, he knew the value of family to the point where when his grand, when his parents were getting up in years and they were wanting something to do because they were tired of being retired, Mel took it upon himself to say, like, you know what? I can open up a shop in Venice Beach and have you guys run it. It'll be a hardware store, and we'll call it the Mel Blank Fix It Shop. Um, this this shop was very popular. It the 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 scheme that they had going on was it's just a typical hardware store, but Mel Blank helped own and operate it and you'd go in you'd talk to mel have him do some voices for you you'd buy a hammer dang everybody wins <laughs> just like the only equivalent that i have for this is if billy west opened up a space shop <laughs> <laughs> and we had like him just doing futurama voices and then selling some form of flying saucer toy for children like that it's crazy to think of like how effective that was and this is also amidst the time where he has a bunch of hit records out for like I Taught I Taught Putty Tat um, or Big Bear Lake, um, which is uh, which was written as an homage to a place he loved and would spend his final years in was Big Bear Lake in California. Um, now, all of this culminates in the formation of the Mel Blanc show. Now, Jamie, what was your what's your knowledge point on this show getting started and the impetus for it well from what i can gather uh, from what i've read and things he he was obviously growing in popularity as you said and uh he but he was mainly a supporting player and so this was an opportunity to put him up front um but personally speaking they've put him in this show with very established people i mean hans conried is in in it um, Mary Jane Croft and Alan Reed at the beginning. They're all very established. Um, ap apart from that, you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, I, I will tell you that from what I was able to gather, the, the origin point only stems from, as you said, his popularity was as such that it made sense to give him a show at this point, or at least to give him a shot. And, you said Hans Conried, Alan Reed. You also had B. Benaderet on occasion, who was a big staple in the Benny world and remained so up until the end of Jack's career. And the, you know, at, at this point, it's it's important to mention that 
the the formation of what the show ended up becoming does center around the fix it shop but that's like the starting point of how it becomes consolidated into something typical um because i'm i'm not going to lie when i before i ever heard an episode of this show when i heard about the idea of the fix it shop my assumption was it might be a workplace comedy more like and and would allow to be crazier because you could have different customers with different voices come in and that doesn't not happen on this show but the plot of the mel blank show is very traditional and very much of the 40s it centers around the love life of mel blank and his attempts to win uh win, win the approval of his sweetheart's father and if you've got shows like my date with Judy um, or my friend Irma, th- th- these are all running within the same lines. It's, it's, it's romance attached to comedy. And there's even elements to me of the life of Riley where it's, you know, a snapshot of a typical workaday Joe, but the difference is you have Mel Blanc and when Paul Olive and Colgate get him on board it's astounding that the format wasn't designed a little differently, especially given the fact that they had two of the cream of the crop writers at that point early on, David Victor and Herbert Little, and they wrote for many different comedies. And it's kind of astounding that they didn't come up with something more unique from it. And I don't know based off of research, if this is just the way Mel wanted it, or if this is just what they were able to sell to the sponsor and to the network, because another thing to note is that Mel went to CBS before Jack. He uh, at, Jack was still at NBC from the 46 to 47 season. So by the time the Mel Blanc show ends, it almost feels like it's an indicator of what Paley's next move is going to be because his own creations aren't working. So we end up getting one of the biggest uh, uh, talent uh, talent scouts uh, scout searches of the late '40s, where Paley is offering untold amounts of money to bring performers from NBC to CBS. Um, so, like, I, it almost feels like this is the litmus test for what Paley's eventually going to do. It's like, okay, if a show like this can work, and other shows that I have on the docket can work then I can form my, I, I don't need to go seeking other people. But if it doesn't, um, I've got a check for over a million dollars or for $2 million for Jack to get him over here. And I know that if I get him over here, others will follow <laughs> because that's exactly what happened. Um, now you mentioned Hans Conried though. I, I'm very glad that we get to talk a little bit about Hans Conried because he is, uh, He's a legend to say the absolute least when it comes to voice acting. Um, I've, I remembered him from my friend, my friend Irma initially, and he was also uncle Tunus on, uh, I love Lucy, but I think people know him a little bit more for the Dudley Wright cartoons as Snidely whiplash. And, and he also did the fractured fairy tales if I'm recalling correctly. But he, this is a guy with a very distinct voice, and he ends up doing two, not one, but two different characters on this show. Um, and that right there, I, I guess I'm wondering is like, 
when you hear that you've got other legends in the room, it's almost like then why do you have Mel Blanc there? <laughs> If you if you if you've got Mel Blank, you almost want to eliminate it and make the other voices sound as basic as possible to make him stand out. And it's just, I guess it's a testament to the fact that you get variety and he gets to work with other legends in the field. But it doesn't it doesn't mesh the same way. But I will tell you that the episode that we heard today, um, that we are going to talk a little bit about, is actually a good starting point for people if they want to get involved in this show because it not only gives you Mel at his arguable finest on the show, um, particularly by the end, but it does set up the world for you pretty well. Um, and I think for, within that, we can kind of jump into the plot of this episode because it's... Uh, it's actually like the it's like one of the one of the episodes that allows Mel to be Mel uh, in the best possible way, because one thing that should be set up is that when he's doing other voices other than himself and Zookie, they are variations on things he's done before, but they are brand newish characters and different schemes are concocted to where nobody would recognize that Mel's doing it. Um, one of my favorites is that he's doing a female voice in the dark where Mr. Colby cannot cl- clearly cannot see him because he's getting away with this female voice for far too long. <laughs> um, but, uh, but we, when we open up on the show, uh, Mel's in deep shit <laughs> because he has, they, they, the, the announcer sta- establishes this as date night and that other, other young perspective bows are walking home satisfied and we hear that Mr. Colby has firmly thrown Mel outside <laughs> outside of his house. Mr. Colby is an abusive prick. <laughs> he doesn't he, he he's he is that typical father-in-law character and I, I he's done by a guy that we're familiar with Joseph Kearns um from Jack Benny's world. Um but it's arguable that he gets to be a lot more animated here than he even is on uh, Benny's program, unless he's playing Ed the guard. Um, and right here we get the setup of like what Mel goes through to win the effect, the approval of Mr. Colby. And I got to ask you, Jamie, is, is it worth Mel to even be in this relationship? <laughs> It does make you wonder, doesn't it? The amount of uh, the amount of shit that he has to put up with on a weekly basis, um, and and most of the time, the only time that he approves is when Mel's doing something for him. Um, which exactly, it has to benefit Mr. Colby, <laughs> and we get one of those examples by the end of the show because uh, the. Uh, the the setup of this is that they're talking he's talking to um uh his sweetheart betty's younger brother and he firmly establishes like you're never going to win my father's approval you need to give up immediately like like throw in your goddamn towel mel and mel is persistent as a character on this show he doesn't give up easily but he is kind of a sad sack which is nice but he doesn't play sad sack the way Jack does. So it's almost like his character's too lovable to like have anything terrible happen to him. Like you, you don't want anything bad to happen to Mel. And I, I think that that, I don't think that's a detriment. I think that is just an intriguing difference between the two. Um, and a lot of this doesn't matter because he's also got to deal with his zebra lodge. Now, 
I have a question. Did, was this something that threw you off about these lodge societies at all? Because I have no idea how it translates into the UK, but these things don't exist really anymore, to my knowledge. <laughs> no, although I think people like the Freemasons in the UK uh, probably mm. have a very similar system, but I, I don't know too much about that. But certainly the lodge thing, I mean, the Flintstones was probably my first exposure to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I wonder sometimes whether writers of the Flintstones would go to old time radio and kind of pick things out and uh you know especially i mean i know it's based off the honeymooners um etc but i think certainly the mel blank show because of that and obviously phil phil harris alice Faye show um very yeah. very similar so yeah um that was like my only exposure to it but like you say there's probably very few things like it now no yeah it's a fraternal order and actually the digital deli uh ftp Dot com has a great article on the history of Mel show and I'll, I'll read from their website to give the exposition of the zebra the 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 benevolent order of loyal zebras uh, as the town's only fraternal order the zebras served as a major social hub of the town uh, so it's a society where a bunch of men get together and carouse drink beer and discuss potential local politics um whenever the zebras encountered each other they were required to both greet each other with the zebra's secret password and the same when they parted the zebra's original password had been hi moga see hunger re hebe gb alacadabra sweet cookie <laughs> I, I i i'm i'm out of breath um <laughs> let's be honest Ugga bugga boo, ugga bugga boo, ugga boo 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 ugga works so much better because it is just a flat, like, silly phrase that works so much better. And and it's one of the reasons why it's fun to introduce ourselves at the top of the show like we did with that. Um, that password was eventually put into a composition introduced in the 22nd episode, The Zebra's Masquerade Ball, with Mel Blanc and the sportsmen singing the lyrics um, uh, with Victor Milliner's orchestra leading it. And I think another thing to point out is the sportsman quartet are, they are something that definitely does not exist anymore. Um, but um, the sportsman quartet on Jack show was designed to sell lucky strike cigarettes. <laughs> they were brought in as a compromise arguably for the fact that, when you were reading, um, you when you read Kathy's book, I think you you got a little bit more in depth on this than you ever did in the past. But the amount of nonsense that George Washington Hill brought into Jack's life with Lucky Strikes is amazing, and the Sportsmen were brought in as a compromise because Jack used to make fun of the product. Um, but there is something in Mel's show that is worth to point out: is we're at a point right now where the shows are streamlined. He's not really allowed to make fun of the product because it's not incorporated into the show the way it was on Jack's show. Um, and even on Burns and Allen, he's actually able to engage with Bill Goodwin in jokes about Maxwell House coffee or Swan Soap. Um, and here, he's kind of being put into this streamlined position where radio is a little bit more efficient, and it just wants the commercials, the comedy, and an occasional song, and that's it. If the, if the show requires a song, they're going to have it. And the sportsman sing a song up at the top and that's about it. They don't really engage beyond that. But the this whole order of zebras thing 
brings us Hans Conried and Mr. Cushing is telling some jokes here that I think bear some exposition because he, they talk about the priority of building the new lodge <laughs> mm-hmm. and he mentions the other things that have a priority and behind them in priority is a veteran building a house. <laughs> There was a housing shortage in our country (laughs) and veterans couldn't find homes. I don't know how to read this joke. (laughs) And like, and now granted the post-war, the post-war era in this country versus what it was over, over where you were at is starkly different. Our housing crisis was, unfortunate because of how many soldiers we had coming back you guys were dealing with even dire more dire circumstances not not to say the least of which with with having to sift through rubble we didn't get attacked that way but we did see a second reappraisal of what happened to world war one veterans when they returned home and having a joke like that in this show is not untypical in, in in typical of the era but I do think it's interesting that these shows were addressing modern issues, even if it was a slight joke, because it's really the only modern joke you get in the episode. Um, it's not like there's a, the, the week before this is the community chest episode that I have in my lineup. And the community chest drive is something that doesn't really exist anymore either. Like it's, I think it's, it's one of those things where I was wondering, like was the what, how long did it like take for you to kind of get over like certain terminologies and kind of just say like, okay, this is a picnic banquet or something like that because you seem to adapt to it quicker than I did when I was first listening to stuff like that. I think I've, I've always had an interest in, in just vintage in, in general. And so you're always going to come across phrases and ideas and concepts and stuff that, that don't really exist. And so there are occasions where you think I have no idea what that means. I need to Google it. But most mm-hmm. of the time, you can get an idea as to what everything means by the outer context. Yeah, and it's it's similar to like uh, the one thing I've always wondered with old time radio, and I think Mel's Mel's show is an ex- exempt from this kind of is that because it is so sitcommy, it's not relying on references of the era as much. But Looney Tunes cartoons and uh, other shows that Mel was involved in reference celebrities of the era heavily. And I always feel like that that ends up being a stopgap for some people um, wanting to listen to old time radio because they can get into suspense. They can get into a Western show. They can get into, I mean, heck you could technically get into a soap opera. Um, But the comedy ones have a weird shelf life because if they're not a sitcom like Mel's, then they don't have uh, they they have they have an expiration date on their references, and unless you are reading newspapers of the era or digging through history books all the time, a lot of stuff's going to go over your head. So I have this theory, even as we're talking about the plot of this, which will get more convoluted, that one of the reasons why you and I were able to latch onto a show like this as easily as we did was because there is no there's no pre-study requirement like. There is no, there is no genuine barrier, um, and I, I mean, you you mentioned Fibber McGee and Molly earlier. That doesn't technically require any education prior either. It's just 
two homey folks hanging out and then people come into their house and then a closet falls in on McGee and nearly kills him each time. How is that guy not dead? How? how? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to take a guess of how many episodes of Fibber McGee and Molly existed and realize how many times shit has fallen on his head. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. He needs to clean out that closet, I think. But he's he's a disorganized jerk like me. He's not gonna <laughs> he's not gonna he's not gonna do it, Jamie, because he he has other things to do, like bitch at Gildersleeve or uh or, or talk to Doc. Like he's not he doesn't need to worry about this closet anymore. Just like Mel shouldn't have to worry about Mr. Colby's uh, opinion of him, but of course he does, and. We get the revelation that amongst the latest things that Mel has done to piss off Mr. Colby is that he broke his new radio, uh, a brand new console radio, because um, instead of putting uh, taking out the radio console and putting and installing it, he threw out the radio and installed the box, <laughs> <laughs> which again. <laughs> I like how they, I don't know if you noticed this, they kind of write Mel to not be, it's not that he's dumb, but he's aloof. Yeah, I, I love that joke uh, with the, they've got a, a spare tube and he's like, oh, just just screw it in the light, you know. And it's like, that's, <laughs> it's typical and it's corny, but it's it's funny. Yeah, actually, that and that's another thing to get into because this is the first time we're doing a, a dissection of a comedy comedy show. You know, like, like the, it sounds like we're in tune to the point where corny humor is not uh, beneath us. Like, it's it, there's an appreciation level that comes with it. Um, I, I I do think that if it if there are earlier episodes of the show where I had some eye rolls, but nothing like nothing major. Like, it's nothing I couldn't like still appreciate. It's thanks to that but, show that I use the word nincompoopery on a yeah, yes <laughs> which is such a good phrase and that's one of i believe that and falls in line with something that doesn't it doesn't so i i wanted to ask you because it's like it's almost like this doesn't happen after a certain point on the show but they were doing zookieisms and it's almost like they stop at a certain point or they don't maintain as much importance but it's kind of like your the precursor for like your wor- your, your your moment of zen on the daily show <laughs> Um, and Bergen actually stole this, um, in his later years where he would have wisdom from Mortimer Snurd at the end of, uh, the fifties broadcast. And I, and I'm just like, Zookieisms are fun because you're getting them out of Mel Blanc's voice. Like that's, that's the, that's the angle here. Nincompoopery is good. And I, we're about to get into the, the meat of this because Mr. Colby is not an official member of the lodge. And Mr. Cushing is talking about the fact that they're going to decide if they're going to vote him in because they they couldn't get enough votes for him last year, so they made him a zebra without stripes. <laughs> and Mel says, "What does what does that make him?" And Mr. Cushing goes, "A jackass." <laughs> <laughs> now somebody might hear that and go, "They allowed they were allowed to say that," and there was like, "Yeah," because they referenced a donkey. This is how they got around the censors to say language of that nature, um, even though the the I don't know if you've noticed this, but like as you fluctuate through the years, the what the censors are worried about changes on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. It literally changes 
to an alarming degree because uh we're familiar with the biggest i mean I, this is my favorite story out of jones book uh that i think it actually comes from jack's part of the manuscript the bing crosby one right yeah the bing crosby one yeah that, tell it tell it to people for people who haven't heard this tell them the story of the, this bing crosby bit. that's the one where he is singing on the show with dennis day and another singer who was um, it i believe uh you had I think Johnny Ray. No, not Johnny Ray. This would have been before Johnny Ray. Mm-hmm. It was two other tenors of the era, like Dick Hames. Dick Hames is one of them. Yes. Um, the, and uh, There was a group of them. And Yeah, they were forming a quartet because the sportsmen were fired by Jack <laughs> four or five episodes ago. and Yeah, and they're trying to sing this song. Um, mm-hmm. And you can tell that Bing is perhaps struggling a little bit with uh, with the song, and he shouts out, "Who the hell picked this key, Dennis Day?" Um, mm-hmm. Which we're probably not with those intonations, but uh, yeah, and he gets into loads of trouble for it. Of course, what they they think it's a conspiracy, don't they? Um, it's yeah. The 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 I I can't remember if it was the network executive or the sponsor. I think it was the network, but. Jack in his dressing room later that night uh, is chewed out by this network executive. He basically goes to the game of just like, you planned this, you planned this, you motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> and you're, and, and if you're Jack, you're thinking like, huh? And the, the response was in keeping with what Bing had just won an Oscar for, which was going my way for playing a priest. And Jack said, nobody's going to get fired. Nobody's going to get fined. Nobody's going to get arrested. All that's going to happen is that Bing is going to have to wear his collar frontwards going forward. And then he just walked out the door. (laughs) Anybody who said that Jack wasn't genuinely funny in real life needs to read that book (laughs) because you get proof that he was. But that's an example of like what they wouldn't allow was the word hell. But you could get around jackass multiple times. In radio shows like Mel's, because you're just referencing a donkey. And in a lot of ways, it kind of falls in line with what you would see in the Warner Brothers cartoons. How many times were they making a donkey joke or a jackass joke Mm -hmm. in those cartoons that went over our heads as kids until we got older? And we're like, oh, I get it now. Um, And so we're waiting for to hear if Colby is going to be made a member of this organization. But Mel has to make amends for the broken radio by appeasing Mr. Colby. And he does this by in, 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 in enlisting the help of Zookie, his uh, hapless stuttering employee. Now let's, 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 let's be honest about Zookie. Cause I love Zookie. He's a mixture of Porky pig and an amalgamation of uh, a more giggling character, but it's very much just Porky pig. Um, in a lot of respects, yeah. even to the point of the laugh. And I, I, I wonder from a, from a modern standpoint, if people were to listen to this, they might just think, well, he's doing Porky Pig, but like there are differences. You can notice where he's changing it up in the voices. And you are a bigger fan of this show than I am in the episodes that you have listened to. Have you been able to kind of spot where he's doing the Looney Tunes cartoons, but just changing the tone a little bit and like adjusting things. Yeah. 
and I think that I don't know if Zuki is not the most prominent example, but like he's done other Texan characters that are not Yosemite Sam, or he does sad sack characters that are not the same as a Sylvester or a Daffy. And I wonder if like, it's almost like the one thing that I wish this show would have had was more, more things like Zuki in it in each episode. It's almost like maybe Hans Conrad would stick around and maybe uh, Mary Jane Croft, but it's almost like you want to eliminate as much as possible and have the characters all done by Mel. And that would be the attraction point of it. Um, and I couldn't find anything in the research that indicated that this was an idea that he would have had at any point, but it's almost like that would have been the obvious thing. And I wonder if Mel was actually trying to make a name for himself at this point, because it's almost like, okay, I've got everything else in my life. Why can't I be the same kind of star that a life of Riley is? Um, and I don't know, like, I mean, do you think if this show had stuck to its format and CBS gave it, gave it another chance that it would have lasted as long as it, uh, longer than it did? I'm, I'm not really sure. And, and now that I think about it, perhaps not because at the top of the show, they announce him as the voice of Bugs Bunny, which then makes you think, mm-hmm. oh, this is going to be wacky, zany, kind of like a Warner Brothers cartoon, but on the radio. And it just mm-hmm. wasn't. And there's only mm-hmm. so many situations, although saying that uh, the aforementioned Phil Harris Alice Faye show ran for like eight years, and that was yeah. just a standard situation comedy however they already had their characters set in stone the thing with Mm. mel blank is they have to keep bringing in these kind of (laughs) you know new characters for him to voice instead of uh just just settling for what's already there i suppose but like you say maybe they should have gone even further with that and uh had him utilized even more yeah, and and it's not to bring Benny into this conversation too much, but I think again it is essential because it's the reason Mel has a shot at his own show has a lot to do with that. But you know, if you listen to the Bill Morrow and Ed Beloin years of Benny specifically, they're like a a literal cartoon on radio. Like the insanity of Morrow and Beloin scripts is out of its mind. Um and even the the later the Lucky Strike years with Tackaberry, Joseph Berg, Perrin and Balzer, they have a cartoon sensibility about it because of what they do with supporting characters like Mabel and Gertrude, Mr. Nelson, um, the racetrack tout, um, Ed, Ed who guards the vault and Mel being Polly the parrot is a clearly cartoonish gag that when you do it on television, it doesn't work at all. Like it's, that's the one thing about Benny's show that is tough to swallow at times is that they do try to transplant radio gags that just don't work. They did the vault and I think they did an admirable effort of it, but the vault doesn't really work on television. It needs to be those sound effects of, uh, of everything going on in the vault and hearing Joe Kearns going like, is the, what did the Kaiser surrender yet? Like <laughs> that, those kind of gags Mel's Mel's popularity at this point, when they're having to mention that he's the voice of Bugs Bunny, it's almost like they're having to remind people who he is. And, you know, we didn't talk about it, but like Mel had to fight for a raise and what he got instead was sole screen credit on those cartoons. And that was a commerce. That was a, that was an exchange that money couldn't buy. 
because he started getting more work as a result. But the popular but the popular notion of Mel Blanc as his own person was not prevalent by comparison. Um, and did you, I mean? And I think that if you're having to say he's the voice of Bugs Bunny each and every week, or of Daffy Duck or Sylvester you are automatically setting yourself up for trying to build up a name that almost needs to exist in mystique. And we get an example of why that mystique works so well, because the plot of this story becomes, well, first of all, he goes, he gets Zookie to deliver up <laughs> to deliver chocolates to him. And, and another expensive item. And Zookie explains that he was able to afford this because Mel cut his salary, which <laughs> Mel's a ruthless Benny Benny-esque employer in that respect. <laughs> I feel bad for Zookie until I realize Zookie and Mel are one and it doesn't. <laughs> um, and the, the plot then becomes Mel is going to fix Mr. Colby's radio. Um, and when he cannot fix it, and Mr. Colby is on his way back from the Zebra Lodge to hear the vote for him. Uh, he decides to get in back of the radio and become the radio. And this is where we get the genius of Mel Blanc at work. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad you picked this episode. Because this episode is an affirmation of how fast he could switch between voices and bits. Um, because amongst the bits we get are a typical soap opera where he is pulling out his Chevalier or Boyer imitation and also doing a, a lady voice going like, I love you. Yeah. And I, I picked it out as kind of a Catherine Hepburn type voice. Ooh, because that's a, yeah. she's, he's doing the Rayleigh Rayleigh that they, they like to do. Um, and I think, I believe he did that impression on the Benny show once or something of that nature. So, yeah. Yeah, I think he did too. Uh, I was actually watching some Looney Tunes last night in prepping for this. And he does that impression in What's Cooking Doc for Clampett. The one where uh, Bugs is trying to get the Oscar and he uh, shows the little Hiawatha cartoon, which does not hold up incredibly well. <laughs> but the out, out the outer section of that cartoon is still amazing. Um, and he does the Catherine Hepburn impression within the bugs impression. And the talent of Mel is, is that you can get an impression within an impression. Like, um, you've seen the doc, um, uh, man of a thousand voices, right? Yeah. The on YouTube, Hank Azaria has the best quote about it, which is just like the brilliance of Mel Blanc is that he could do an imitation of Daff. He could do Daffy imitating bugs or bugs imitating Daffy. And he's seemingly the only voice actor that can do that and and get away with it because they tried doing it at The Simpsons one day and it didn't work. They just couldn't get it to work. And it does sound like, like the only comparable voice artist existing that could feasibly do it is Billy West because v Billy West apparently possesses vocal cords that were sent down by Satan and or heaven combined. <laughs> like they're like a con like a confluence of of amazingness in there. Um, but that's kind of the beauty of it is like he does that Hepburn impression in that Boyer, which I, I, I adore, but then he gets into what I think is like the most insane Mel Blanc voice that's ever existed. That isn't a vocal like character. It's an electric organ. <laughs> I, I love the, 
I love that organ. Oh, so it, good. Where do you think that I, I, that must have first appeared in Looney Tunes? I I can't imagine it was origined out of Jack's, but I know he did it on Jack a bunch. Um, but if for people who don't know, I'll I'll lay in the sound of it even after you've heard the episode. Like I'll 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 specify it for you. But that organ is is an example of how insane he would get with just sounds. So it wasn't just dialects, accents. It was the the way things sounded. This is a guy who was the voice of a car for 20 plus years on radio and television. And so much so that when they made Looney Tunes back in action and they have that jalopy car that Brendan Fraser and Daffy Duck are driving to Vegas... They 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 didn't get somebody to do it, and they didn't go to a sound effects bank. They went to the Mel Blanc bank, and they put Mel Blanc's Maxwell sounds in there for the Gremlin, um, which also incorporated into other Looney Tunes cartoons. But that's an example of how amazing it is. And as Mr. Colby is listening to the programs and not understanding how they sound different <laughs> or why his radio is... Bu- <laughs> I'm I'm not one for logic holes, Jamie. <laughs> How does he not spot this right away? <laughs> <laughs> well, especially as uh, they, they um, he he does the uh, the announcer voice and he announces like one orchestra and then says there's going to be performance by another one and it's exactly the same sound. <laughs> <laughs> and you hear Joseph Kern's <laughs> slow burn. <laughs> it's. It's one of those, like, I, I now here's a question. Joe Kearns or Gail Gordon better at the slow burn anger? Because I think you could put them in a competition and it would be a close call. I, th- I think you're right there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Gail Gordon only has the edge because uh, for anybody who hasn't listened to Armis Brooks, uh, I'm going to find a way to... Um, incorporate that both in the movie and in the radio realm because the movie version is worth discussing. It's not great, but it's worth discussing. Uh, but Gail Gordon's slow burn was where he would say something and acknowledge the frustrating situation and then wait for about, I want to say 30 seconds before he overreacts. Joseph Kearns is good at like, it's a slow, slow burn to anger that kind of rises exactly when it needs to. And he just, he knows when to lower or raise the pitch of his voice in such a manner because we get an example that afterwards he discovers that Mel is behind the radio. He's about to kill him. (laughs) He is not happy. And that's when Mr. Cushing comes in and says that we still need your vote Mel for the, uh, to allow Mr. Colby into the zebra lounge. And he says that like, I'll, I'll, I'll finish it after Mr. Colby's done choking. (laughs) And, I, I didn't mention it at the top, but the the joke that I mentioned about it being dark, like they, they this is an era where you're unafraid to make jokes about death. Um, now, you know, this is something I wanted to ask you because, you know, we're, we're, we're both within a similar age range to a degree. And when we talk about humor with death and specifically suicide, it's a tricky territory because you are the, the era that this is coming from is not privy to the psychological implications of it. But there is a joke in this episode that I found incredibly dark, which was it's at the top when 
amongst the things that Mr. Colby has done to him recently is that he invited him to take a ride in his jalopy and keep on going, keep the motor going and never stop. And he said, well, where were you? And he's just like in the garage. And I'm like, oh, that's dark. <laughs> does it sit well for you as a modern listener or are you able to kind of get past it? It does make you feel uh, a little bit uncomfortable because obviously we are a little bit more aware of these things now. And you mentioned earlier about the, the Christmas shopping episodes on, on the Benny program, especially the, yeah. the TV thing where he basically goes out and shoots himself. And mm -hmm. it's yeah. it. You laugh for about half a second because you're like, "Oh, he was driven like it's so over yeah. the top the, that you're yeah. like, yeah, okay." But then it it makes you feel mildly uncomfortable. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those like the way you get around language and sexual innuendo is doing jokes of this nature. So it's almost like this is the boldest they could get. And so now that we can make jokes of a sexual nature or even of violence in a certain nature, these jokes don't really exist partially because we don't need to do them, but also because we know more. Um, so it's almost like they're antiquated to a certain degree. Like De Dennis Day has a lot of jokes where he just says flat out, I'm going to kill myself and it's treated for laughs. And it's like, oh, that does not, that does not sit well. The only reason it's funny is because of the way Dennis is written. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't work under any other circumstance. Um, here, I think it does work because it is Colby telling him to, it's, it's not Mel proclaiming he's going to kill himself. It's still uncomfortable though. <laughs> um, and I think as well, um, it's one joke in 25 minutes. It's not particularly, you know, it's, it's not one after the other. And I think that's the thing. They're kind of peppered throughout mm -hmm. the series it's not constant yeah it's very much a they're gag driven they're they're gag driven moment by moment like the goal of these shows is cram as much as you can in 30 minutes and that's not to sound it's not uh it's not denigrating it's like that's their efficient goal like jack did this as well burns and allen definitely did this and in the early years of burns and allen you can hear their vaudeville humor like going at a clip a minute um, Bob Hope's kind of the only one that deviates from it because his monologue is naturally speedy, but then it delves into sketch comedy that's allowed to kind of take whatever form it wants to. Um, and Mel's Mel's show falls in that same category. Like every every opportunity they get a chance to do a joke, they do. Much like the ending of this show, where after he says like after Mr. Colby starts stops choking me, I'll make my vote, and he ends up whispering his vote into Mr. Cushing's ears. And then we get this small pause and then Mr. Colby asks what the decision is. And Mr. Cushing says, Mr. Mr. Colby, on behalf of the fellow zebras, I'm proud to say, ugga bugga boo, ugga boo boo, ugga boo boo boo, ugga. <laughs> Which means that Mr. Colby has been voted in and Mr. Colby seemingly forgets all the, the frustrations Mel has caused him for this week <laughs> to, to uh, accept him and... Um, it's it's weird. It's almost like this would be the series finale, like in a certain respect with the ending, because by the next week, Mr. Colby's back to hating his guts. So it's like it doesn't carry a through line. But these shows weren't expected to at that time. No, they're, like, they're standard sitcom where you always go back to the beginning again. And it's kind of a little bit unsatisfying when it does end like that, because you're like, but next week he he hates him. 
you know mm -hmm. what what happened um i i i feel that way about armis brooks because every time there's ep episodes that end with him with her and mr boynton clearly getting together and then the next week we're back to mr boynton being a shy biologist with his pet frog mcdougall i'm like you ended the show <laughs> it's done or you find a way to work with their relationship but i think there is a part of that that is also the appeal and i was going to ask like does the episodic nature of this uh lend some form of of appreciation that you're not going to get from modern television because that's the one thing that has really changed is that we don't do bottle episodes anymore or bottle format where you know everything has to kind of carry a through line like a long movie yeah i mean it, it is true that whenever we do sitcom in the modern age everything has to follow on from each other and and it kind of changes so series two is completely different to series one because they've had to continue the the story. Uh, but with something like that, we uh, certainly in Britain, um, a lot of a lot of the uh, conventions of kind of starting back to where where it uh, where where it began, you know, uh, has been a constant. I, I'm not quite sure about the American sitcoms i love mm. american sitcoms but uh a lot of british ones tend to stick to that format there's a lot that kind of things change at the end but then at the beginning of the next one it's, it's the same yeah you know. I, I remember spaced being one that carried through lines but it also managed to be isolated on its own um and but that's i also keep in mind that like we only get two series of spaced and we don't get we don't get anything after that because edgar wright goes on to do what he does um but um, there was, I mean, I think that American television has largely abandoned it because I think that we're conditioned as an audience to want to follow a through line. But we also have ways of picking out episodes that don't that you could jump into. And thankfully, the exposition of what's important for the overall story arc is uh, explained in such a way that it doesn't isolate a new viewer. Um, but I think it's getting more complicated now because streaming exists in such a way that binge watching is a prevalent form of it. Um, one of the reasons I still prefer going back to Star Trek, the original series or Star Trek TNG is, is that there are a majority of episodes in there that are primarily like on their own and they're telling their own story within 60 minutes. But the one, and one of the reasons I haven't gone back to DS nine for a while is because it starts to go more episodic and become a little bit more or, or not episodic, uh, like uh, more of a through line. Um, and I know Voyager has full of that. Um, and I think that we are at a, at a point where, you know, you talked about on your recent episode of your show um, about Prime taking off of uh, taking things off of the UK Prime um, for CBS t doing this. And I feel like one of the reasons why I agree with you is that it's a, it's a shame that that's not an option that's readily available, because I do think that there are still a majority of people that appreciate that back to one each week. Um, and not because they don't want thorough storytelling. I think we do in all of our ways, shape and forms, but there is something pleasant about, I can pop on any episode of the Dick Van Dyke show and jump right in. I know exactly what's going on. Or, um, you mentioned Petticoat Junction, like that's one where you don't like you, you're jumping in each week. 
and I and Jack's show falls in line with that, and so does Mel's. Like we only get around, we only get like forty plus episodes of Mel's show, but it ends as by a certain point, and you are given a nice little chunk of something enjoyable to listen to, and. I mean, uh, day, day in the life of Dennis Day is another another example where it doesn't last as long as Jack's show, but there's still a good chunk available where you do get a nice variation. Um, and I think that that is what's missing from uh, from most television today. I will say though, because we wrapped up the Mel episode, that one thing that I wish that the show did have was some form of through line that carried itself to an arc because I feel like that would have been a compromise in adopting this typical format. Um, I don't think anybody in the era was going to latch onto that, but like, and this is benefit of hindsight easily because it's easy for you and I to say, Oh, well this would be great if it had an overarching story where Mr. Uh, where Mr. Colby accepts Mel for who he is, but it's almost like that would have been a good beneficial element because Benny carried through lines, but he didn't do it an entire season. He did it like over the course of four or five episodes. I think one of the longest ended up being the sportsman quartet getting fired. Um, but like everything seemed to kind of call back from the past and Mel's show doesn't really possess that. It really is like a reset button each week. Um, and from there, that is the end of this episode. Now, Jamie, you picked this episode. What is what is your takeaway from this episode, and why is it among your favorites? Well, I, I just think that it breaks the mold of the other episodes, and I think it's possibly the strongest because as you listen, I know you listen to a large chunk of them. As you listen to them, uh, there's a lot of formulaic stuff going on there. Uh, there mm-hmm. are wife jokes that go down that really would not fly today. Um, I think they died out in Britain in about the 1980s. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and there's there's a lot of formulae. You listen to one episode, you listen to them all. And what I like about that one is it manages to take uh, its parts and actually do something with them. You know, yeah. uh, Mr. Cushing is not sexist in this one mm-hmm. like he is yeah. in a lot of the other episodes and Hartley Benson although I love that character because uh he's just so full of himself the great big adorable me guy um yeah. is not present here because he doesn't actually push on any any narrative and that's he's a he's an ancillary side character he doesn't he in in all the episodes he's in he's he's wonderful to listen to but he's not propelling the plot and so with this You've got every character playing a part. I mean, the the Zuki um, thing where he's reading the card and Mm -hmm. Mel's brilliant delivery of the spacing of fruits and nuts to you. Yes. (laughs) um, Is just, uh, it's it's amazing. And it it just shows all his best qualities. Like you said, that delivery, uh, the the organ sound and, uh, you know, and all that type of thing. And personally, um, when my wife and I first started going out, one day I sat her down and, and we we went for a picnic or something. And I put on a CD of old time radio and we listened to two shows, one of which was the Martin and Lewis show. 
Um, and then the <laughs> second one was that one. And so th that show has also quite a personal significance for me for that reason. That's a that's a lovely story. That's a that's a great way to like, and that's a good thing to share something like, that you love with the people that you love, and that's that's a good sentiment to have within our 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 respective loves of this medium of the past is that it is something you can share. Um, I know Mr. Cushing is sexist in other episodes, and this <laughs> is hard to listen to, uh, but he is a character much like all the other ones that has a grounding in some form of humor of the past that is still worth listening to. I think Mel, I think Mel's show is a, a standout from most shows that only last a season and don't get any recognition primarily because you do have Mel. Um, there will always be a curiosity with this show because of Mel Blanc. Um, and even if it doesn't work for one person, another person like you or me will latch onto it in some form or fashion and appreciate what, what was there. Um, now I wanted to talk about the reception of Mel's show because it wasn't flowery to say the least. Um, and it struggled. Um, this show started in 46 by the time that it, we reached the April 1st episode of 1947 billboard had this to say after more than five months, the Mel Blanc program still seems to be groping probably most responsible for its failure to come anywhere near the show type average or to top programs aired opposite is the scripting the production contributing to a lesser extent writers seem to have been misled by Blank's vocal versatility into trying to introduce too many odd characters, which is interesting to me because he doesn't nearly get a chance to incorporate the variety that he could. It's almost like billboards looking at this the wrong way. And again, like the idea of the fix it shop being your primary central focus would be more tantalizing in a lot of respects. Um, and the, um, uh, this same reviewer concludes that blank still has great potentials. If Colgate Sherman Marquette or the writers could find the right formula, plus a production with pace, the show will get a cohesion. It lacks now as it stands. It'll take a lot of doing to edge the Hooper higher. Um, yeah, the show was not a big ratings hit either. Um, it's almost like a lot of uh, the, the fact that it runs over a year is a testament to Mel Blanc's popularity that it has some form of an audience, but it was not enough to justify Colgate pumping further money into it. And I guess to keep in mind why Colgate would want to drop this is that by 1946 into 1953, there's a list of shows that they have on their docket. One of them is a day in the life of Dennis day, which was proving to be more popular. And in fact, a, a good chunk of the reason why that show is as popular as it was when it started and similar to Phil and Alice is that Benny was promoting it heavily on uh, the back half of his shows. He was very supportive of them. I never heard much promotion for Mel's show during that season. Um, and I don't know the reason why. Um, I don't think it was... I don't think it was Jack being callous, um, but it might have had something to do with the fact that at the time Jack was still at NBC and Day in the Life of Dennis Day and uh, Phil Harris, Alice Faye were at NBC as well. So it was easier to promote it. 
And then once Jack moved to CBS, Dennis Day went to CBS as well. And you stop seeing a lot of promotion for Phil Harris's show because it's still at NBC. And one of the reasons why Phil is phased out at a certain point, I, there's a couple of stories. I don't know how many of them are true, but one is definite for sure is, is that he started focusing more on his own show. And when he was on Benny's program, he'd be on for five minutes and then rush over across the street from, from CBS to NBC to do his show, which required his full attention. Mel was already at CBS when Jack was still at NBC, so he can't promote another a competing network show. He can't do it. Um, but he clearly still give, gave Mel a bunch to do because the 46-47 season has a lot of Mel in it, um, not the least of which Professor LeBlanc, which I think was is arguably one of his most famous characters in radio history, hands down. Um, because he is, he is tortured. <laughs> um, and the additional ones is they also Palm Olive, uh, sorry, Colgate started also sponsoring by the following year, Armis Brooks. They were already starting to look more into the future of what streamlined sitcoms were going to look like, because this show is following a format that has Life of Riley and My Date with Judy and My Friend Irma attached to it. Armis Brooks takes a huge left turn and gives them something unique, which is day in the life of a school teacher. This is something that doesn't exist in the comedy realm that Brooks improvises. So the show had the acts given to it. Um, Billboard's 1947 uh, issue on May 24th reported that there's no question that Blank's truest fans have simply loved 25 minutes of Mel Blank reading a telephone book in various dialects, but that's not how CBS and Colgate build the Mel Blank show. It was promoted as a situation comedy variety show, competing with at least 12 other similar situation comedy variety programs of the era, many of them very highly rated. Um, and the story that premiered in there indicated that fate of the Mel Blanc show has been reportedly sealed by bankroller Colgate Palmel of Pete, who is understood to have ordered the show dropped at the end of the current cycle on June 24th. So the show ends on that exact day in 1947, um, leaving behind it with Mel continuing his reign on the Benny program uh, to an extent, his raid on Burns and Allen and uh, Abbott and Costello, but he really starts moving into television with Jack. Um, and the Warner Brothers shorts are still thriving at this point. Um, now, he would continue to voice these characters as they were phased out of theatrical and into television, but in 1961, uh, he was not present for a recording session because. A man who was never late got into a car accident on the road with his Aston Martin. His entire body broken, uh, pummeled to shit. And the doctors were not sure if he was going to make it. He was in a coma. Jack was present nearly every day while he was in the hospital, um, still out of it. And one of the most amazing things happens that's ever that history has ever recorded is that the doctor got an idea and started saying bugs, bugs. Can you hear me bugs? And Mel Blanc still in a coma uttered the phrase, what's up doc. And then the doctor started saying, Tweety, are you in there? He would respond as Tweety. 
Daffy, are you in there? He responded as Daffy. And Mel Blanc came out of his coma because the doctor knew that he would. Because even though Blank was not fully lucid, he was responding as those characters. So the voices that we admired over the past hour and a half here are what saved Mel Blanc's life at the end. And he would continue to work heavily into the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And Keith Scott says that his vocal performances dip after this point. I I guess that's a judgment call based off of what your preference is of Mel Blanc. Because I don't know if you're like me, Jamie, but like I, I think my first technical exposure apart from Looney Tunes to Mel Blanc would have been the Flintstones. Yeah. And the... The Hanna-Barbera years are not the same, but they're not by any means worthless. Um, I I still think Captain Caveman is quite inventive. <laughs> um, and the he started working closely with his son, Noel, and Noel and him formed Mel Blanc Associates, which was designed to not only find more work for Mel, but, but to also encourage up-and-coming voice artists. Um and in 1989, the last thing that Mel Blanc worked on theatrically was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where Bugs Bunny at last was on screen with Mickey Mouse. Uh, and it's still a wonderful ga- gag of him handing him a spare parachute, and he just hands him the spare. And, of course, it's just a spare tire, and Eddie Valiant falls to the ground. Um, and the final full thing he does is an Oldsmobile commercial, which was for the campaign of this is not your dad's Oldsmobile. And he was not feeling good. Uh, he was sent to the hospital. The doctor said he could leave that day um, uh, with an inhaler to clear up his lungs, or he could uh, stay at the hospital overnight. And Mel said that he would stay at the hospital overnight. Um, but unfortunately, uh, while he had, had his stay at the hospital, um, he had a combination of factors involved in his health. Uh, and one of them was coronary artery disease. This combined with a fall at the hospital contributed to his death within 48 hours of being checked into the hospital. Um, it, it's, it's sad there's something that Noel says in one of the interviews is that like his dad never looked like he never pondered death. He just knew that if he was going to go, he was going to go. And it's almost like, however sad the story is at the end, you know, the, I don't think Mel Mel is one of the few personalities that we've talked about on this show that has never died because the Looney Tunes still exist. And even if the voices have changed because the actors have changed, your mind is going back to Mel immediately. Um, something I was going to ask you is we've obviously we don't have a f- further iteration of the Mel Blank show, which is, you know, I think is a good thing because there's only one Mel Blank. And if you were going to do the show that we were talking about for this chunk of time, you can't have anybody else trying to do that. I think you, I mean, Billy West could probably do it, but I think Billy West has, has properties that extend into what works in the medium today. Um, or even Maurice LaMarche, who is another fantastic voice artist who has his own range. And, um, Rob Paulson has a podcast. 
Um, and it's a little bit more conversation based, but he does these characters from time to time. Um, but the Looney Tunes have continued to exist to the point where we've had several different theatrical iterations of them. Not the least of which has been the recent uh, resurgence of a certain basketball themed movie, <laughs> which I mean, I mean, this is this is open territory. Are you are, do you what what are your thoughts on Space Jam? <laughs> the thing is, I, I loved the original because it came out when I was about six years old. And to be honest, it was the first time that I'd seen basketball and I didn't Ooh. really um, kind of go further with that basketball obsession until I was in my 20s. Uh, but it kicked it off for me. And the, the new one um, just looks like a, a combination of all of the Warner Brothers assets basically mm. being brought out of the dustbin. Um, which yeah. is a real shame because a lot of those assets, certainly like the Hanna-Barbera stuff, which Mel had a hand in, could be things in their own right. I mean, I want to see a um, a live-action Jetsons movie, for example. Yeah. You know, things things like that, stuff that he contributed to rather than just being in this yeah. kind of, you know, as a spare part. This, uh, this amalgamation of an ad for a movie, yeah. And it's funny that you say that because I was six years old around the time that Space Jam came uh, out. And that was my first theatrical experience with the Looney Tunes, but I had them on on Cartoon Network prior to that. And I think it actually encouraged me to love the Looney Tunes more in a certain respect. And I just reviewed Space Jam A New Legacy for real nerds podcast and i was not a fan of it but not because of the looney tunes i was a i was dismayed by the runtime and certain elements of them cramming in uh all of their ip into one piece which my co-host later pointed out it might be them renewing copyrights and i'm like that's a smart way to do it because you have a lot of extras in the background that look like they come from a clockwork orange Uh, (laughs) In a kid's movie, Jamie, I, I just never thought I'd see that to this day, and that's fine. But the 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 legacy of those voices and how they sound only comes from Mel Blanc. So, like, yeah. even if Billy West does Bugs for Space Jam or if Joe Alasky does it for Looney Tunes Back in Action, which, to my mind, is the better Looney Tunes movie for what the Looney Tunes are supposed to be. Um, it's, it's, it's not to denigrate Space Jam or Space Jam A New Legacy. It's just... The Looney Tunes back in action does justice to what that premise was and what Chuck Jones and the other animators and directors brought to that initial run of short subjects. But Mel Blanc's presence is always felt because those characters still exist and you don't they don't exist without him. And the weird thing is, um, I don't know if you know this fact, but in... 1998-99, there was a PlayStation 1 game called Bugs Bunny Lost in Time. And Yosemite Sam is in that, and he sounds awfully familiar. And it's because they've gone back to the Mel Blanc tapes because he had hundreds of tapes that he recorded over the years. And they used his voice in that video game, which is astonishing. That is astounding. And I'm sure that that, meant, that must mean that Noel had a handling in uh, handling the estate on that. And... So was it just Yosemite Sam or was it like other characters or? Um, I, I don't know, but I know that certainly I, I think it was that voice 
that was used. He may have had other things, but if you think about the language of a video game, Mel wouldn't have said like, you know, press A or whatever. He wouldn't have said yeah. any of those things in a in the voice. But from what I remember, um, certainly Yosemite Sam is is yeah. Mel Blanc in that. And of course, they they used a couple of his comedy records in the mid 2000s mid 2010s something like that to do new shorts with his uh with his voices on they did i uh taught i thought a, a putty tat and they also did dappy's rhapsody i think yeah um i find it wonderful in at least dappy's rhapsody that mel's name is huge <laughs> i mean i think i think june foray is in that too which is a nice touch, but I think that's a new voice that she mm-hmm. did at that time. Um, uh, but the fact that Mel's thing, it's, it says starring June Foray, but then Mel's voice, uh, Mel's um, name is huge on the screen, yeah. uh, which is a, a great thing, which shows, you know, all this time later, just how influential and just how well known that is. And of course, being yeah. thing as, as one of the first people to get, a, um, you know, a screen credit. And that he's still getting credit to this day. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I agree with that. And like, that's one of those things that made back in action. So special was finding the Easter eggs later on and re- realizing in the credits, Oh, they went to Mel's sound bank for the, for the gremlin. Um, and the Looney Tunes cartoons that have come out recently have both been praised by people like me or come under fire for various dumb reasons. Um, I, the, doesn't matter if elmer fudd has a gun he can still be funny without a gun guys um <laughs> it that's not the point of the character uh it's it's a nice prop that he has on several occasions um but the uh the christmas special that they did which was released um within the back half of last year in the second batch that they put on on hbo max uh the christmas special has two key uh picture cameos um uh, in this live action environment that they have before they introduce the stories one of them is Bob Clampett, who is arguably he's not the father of Bugs Bunny, but he is the uh, undoubted. He I think he uh, perfected the per, the Bugs Bunny persona for a lot of people um, that gave him the manic energy that then was refined by Chuck Jones into more of a suave character. Um, but the other picture is of Mel Blanc. And even to this day, no matter how many people carry on the voices it doesn't matter who they are or who who they're playing every single one of them in nearly every interview will mention mel blank instantly it's 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 a it's a pavlov's dog response at this point like they they, it you can't not acknowledge mel and there is a plan to do a looney tunes retrospective on this show and i have a way to do it but it's going to be it's going to be in the works a little bit because I, I want to not relegate it to just the subject. I'd like to go by character because the thing about the Looney Tunes and one of the reasons why Mel Brooks is or Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks is a genius too, but Mel Blank is um, a genius is that Blank was given several different variations on those characters over the years. Fritz Freeling did one type of Bugs Bunny. McKimson did another. Uh, Clampett did one version. Tex Avery, when he was still there, did a version. Um, and each time he's having to inhabit the character depending on who is directing this cartoon. 
And if they if he was consolidating this all on a Tuesday recording, he might be recording several different variations of bugs in a given day. And Noel used to point it out to the fact that he was basically a method actor because of how he had to inhabit those characters. And Mel would respond like, no, 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 I'm just a voice guy, which is, I think, is a is the one thing that has thankfully evolved from Mel's work is that voice acting, while it, I think, is still disrespected on a high level, has become much more of an art form that is recognized and acknowledged in a way that it wasn't before. The one exception being the fact that one of the detriments to my mind of voice acting today is that in order to sell many big animated films that come out, you have to have a celebrity voice doing it and they are not equipped to be celebrity. They're not equipped to be voice artists. The, the golden age of animation really lies in television now because of those voice actors still being able to work on those shows. So like Futurama adventure time, even the reboot of Animaniacs bringing back Paulson and LaMarche, you know, that's that's where you're going to get your prime animation right now. And I don't think because I don't think Disney or DreamWorks wants to take a risk with it. Space Jam, a new legacy for any problems we might have with it as how it represents the Looney Tunes or if Daffy Duck is not given enough to do, which is my prevailing thought the actors who are hired to do that, many of them come from different eras of voicing Looney Tunes from the past into the future because you have Goldberg and you have Bowser coming in and doing these voices who are from two different generations of having voiced these characters. So the legacy of the Looney Tunes is, is that for all the iterations they've been through, they've still stuck to hiring just the voice guy in Mel's terms and not going for a big celebrity and I think that only comes from Mel Blanc establishing it as a credible art form, even if he himself didn't see it. Um, and that method acting, by the way, extended to the point when Arthur Q. Bryan died. You know, he didn't want to do Elmer Fudd. And you can tell the difference in an Elmer Fudd's. Um, in fact, like if, if there's one thing I could say about Mel Blanc is that his Elmer Fudd is not as good as the Elmer Fudd's that would come after him. Because... Others were going off of Brian and Blank was trying to not go off of Brian. Um, but yes, I think Mel Blank is always going to be with us. Um, you know, you and I collect those DVDs. We have those movies. We have these 40 plus episodes of a radio show that he did where we got to see a different side of him that we're not going to see or hear on the Benny program or on the Burns and Allen program. And I think that that is a testament to how much we love him to this day. Um, yeah. On that front, Jamie, I want to thank you for coming down for uh, via Zoom for two hours to talk about the glory of Mel Blanc. Um, do you have any final thoughts on him as a subject and like what he means to you? Well, I I think when I when I look back at his work, I I realize how much he's influenced me as an artist. Um, how much um, kind of versatility is is okay, and wanting to. Um, you know, be have fingers in lots of different pies. And I do recommend actually people check out a relatively new book by audio engineer Chuck McGibbon um, called Mel Blank, The Voice of Bugs Bunny and Me, which is an eye opener. 
Um, that is a, an amazing book. It's available as an audio book as well. Um, and Ooh. yeah, he, I've just finished, just finished it. And some of the, some of the claims in there are really interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with your, your sentiments that Mel is going to be around forever because he created those characters. And of course, all the, he, he also taught me the value of kind of stocking up on things. The amount of times I just will not throw anything away. I will keep literally everything, even if I make a mistake. And um, thanks to new social media um, platforms that are out there, material that I did like 20 years ago is now being recycled because <laughs> I was inspired to keep all of it because of Mel Blanc. Um, and yeah, I, I just think, like you said, he will live forever. And... Uh, I think the thing about a lot of those old time radio people is that you you're never done with them. There are so mm -hmm. many shows and what you have to remember is that here in in Britain uh there are radio shows that ran for a long time but perhaps for not as many episodes. In America, you know, a show can run for 2 years and have, you know, 2 times 39 episodes which yeah. is a humongous <laughs> chunk of uh, <laughs> of episodes. So, yeah, you're never done with them. You're always finding something new, as is evidenced by this recent book that I discovered. But, no, thank you very much for having me as a guest. Yeah, and I, and I want to add on to that is that, you know, we're, we're discovering... We're discovering that radio shows of the past uh, that we thought didn't exist um, exist because the... Uh, the Marx Brothers Council podcast had a guest on uh, not too long ago where they were revealing that, like, we found a pretty much a completed show or two of um, or a completed show of Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, which is the Marx Brothers show that they did. It was it was Chico and Groucho because obviously Harpo's not going to speak. Mm -hmm. But that's that's a show where a lot of the writing in those scripts ended up finding its way into duck soup which is a uh, which is a masterclass in comedy for many people and these things still pop up every so often uh, laura uh, laura alluded to in her episode that things like this still pop up all over the place that's unexpected and i think that like the fact that we have as much as of mel preserved as we do is a testament to, to collectors and broadcasters like the Gasmans, um, like Walden Hughes, who have an enthusiasm for this medium and continue to bring it to our attention. Um, and part of the other brilliant part of it is, because I'm assuming this is similar in the UK, but a lot of these are pretty accessible on YouTube. They are not hard to find. Um, but well <laughs> C certainly for american shows very easy to find but uh yeah ye old bbc like to uh like to lock their their vault pretty tight um well when know. they weren't wiping tapes they were locking other things pretty tightly <laughs> mm -hmm. the amount of things that have been found and been handing back to the bbc and sometimes you never hear of it again um which yeah. i think is is a shame because these things need to be heard you know no matter how old they may be because like you said ev everything still has value um i've always believed that everything still has value even if half the references in it you need to uh you you need to research i mean even we've just been talking about the mel blank show 
that they constantly made references in the Benny show and, and the, the uh, blank show we just listened to about Eastern Columbia Broadway at night. And I had to go and look up what that meant. But I, I, I waited forever to find out what the heck that was. <laughs> and when I found out it was a department store, it almost felt like a letdown. Because <laughs> I was like, this has to be some kind of magical, wonderful place if they're mentioning it constantly. <laughs> it's like, nah, it's just a department store in, in LA. <laughs> this is, okay, that's fine. Um, it's like, but, and that's another thing. Like, I, I feel like that even if, even if those references go over your head, it does compel you to research. Yeah. I think that's why comedy ends up being the most valuable thing that we look through because it teaches us a part of our history that we weren't aware of initially. Um, and, I think like a benefit of Mel's show and other shows like it is that you do get a capsule of how human behavior existed at a certain point and what was funny and how much has changed in humor. And it's why these things never lose value is because they provide a perspective. And I think that that perspective is vital if you want to grow as a society. And the first step is looking at what we did before and then saying to ourselves like, okay, now what can we do to improve? Or what do we acknowledge has changed and what needs to happen after that fact? Um, but on that note, thank you very much, Jamie. We definitely want you back. I know that you mentioned a certain uh, college-themed comedy film, which I know film's not your forte, but you mentioned a, uh, a delightful comedy uh, from the 30s that I was amazed that somebody else had brought up because <laughs> I was like, I thought I was the only one who liked this movie. I, I, I couldn't imagine anybody else enjoying it, but... Um, so with the stars aligning, we'll be in touch to, to talk some college swing, um, and let everybody know where they can listen to you and your wonderful work. Cool. Well, uh, let's see. So you can check out the website, oldtimereview.co.uk, or as many American voiceover artists, whenever I've sent them the address, they've gone .co.uk. Um, <laughs> and also, uh, a Brit Talks Vintage TV is on there. Um, there's also a, a podcast around that my wife and I do called The Hudsons, which is kind of based off of old time radio things like uh, The Couple Next Door, uh, Easy Aces. And there's yep. also a very old, about five years ago, I wrote a comedy in the style of sort of Benny and, and Mel Blanc called An Englishman Out of State, which at the time I thought was brilliant. But in hindsight, there are flashes of of okay this is still funny but uh in the meantime uh i've learned a lot more about it's just reference after reference um yeah it's it's a lot harder than it looks but i was just inspired by american comedy so that's out there there's there's so many things you type my name into google jamie dyer and it, it just comes up with stuff and <laughs> like i said it's it's the mel blank thing it's wanting to be versatile and do lots yep. of different things but yeah oldtimereview.co.uk uh, we've got um, obviously the podcasts on there. I've done a few bits and pieces for that. Uh, we also do reviews of radio, television, music prior to 1980. And many people ask me, why, why 1980? That's not old time. It's like, yeah, but many of the stars of the 30s and 40s were still working way through. Yeah. I mean, uh, Milton Berle was in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, yeah, which is, he was on the critic. He was on the show, the critic. Yeah, which, which, 
I, I don't know if that's an isolated reference for people in the UK because I do not know how far that show carried. <laughs> but I know what it uh, is. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, but the but Burl Burl lasted into the early two thousands, I believe. Yeah. I can't remember what year he died. Yeah, but like Ro- Rooney was around for years. Um, <laughs> and actually, in the eighties is like the last cusp of that. Yeah. Like we talked about this a little bit, but you know, Benny in his final years in seventy four was still very popular. George Burns, like that's a that's an entire like second life he had in the eighties. Yeah, and, so I think like it's valuable. And the other thing to to bear in mind, because I do podcasts on a lot later pop culture, sort of nineties pop culture as well, which is a completely different side of my life. But a lot of yeah. the times we'll be talking about reruns of I Love Lucy and you know all these things from from way before because. These things from the past seep into our present and become part of of pop culture, you know. Yeah, I think that, well, the 90s especially has still permeated us. Um, from the film front, I know for a fact that Quentin Tarantino will never not be a point of discussion because of what he did in the 90s. Um, and Kevin Smith's bringing a lot of his stuff back with Clerks, uh, with Clerks 3 being in production. And... Fresh Prince of Bel Air and Friends had these like amazingly successful reunion shows on HBO Max. Like so, they there's still everything that you probably loved as a kid has some merit and value, and it's up to you to 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 express that love and devotion to it. Um, it all sounds wonderful, and thank you for letting people know where they can check you out. And I think you should, guys, because he's bringing a different perspective that you're not going to hear all the time, especially on this show, because. We we we're lucky in this country to have the exposure points that we do, um, but and we take that I think we take it for granted to be honest. Which is one of the reasons why I like your the the Brit Talks Vintage Television is because you you don't have the necessary emotional attachment that would be understood to be required for that that entertainment, but you find a refuge in it, and I think it's important to hear a perspective on why these shows still work from people that aren't just in this country angrily posting on message boards or whatever, you know, like, like there is another side to this and it is, it is important to understand why these things have the legs that they do. Um, and on that note, that is going to be the, the wrap up for this episode of the yesteryear Ballyhoo radio review. Uh, you could find more episodes of yesteryear Ballyhoo review at large at, uh, Ballyhoo, Ballyhoo you can write us at ballyhoo-review-pod at gmail.com. Um, on the next episode of the show, I believe we will be doing one of two things. We will either be talking about King Kong or we will be having a discussion about Breakfast at Tiffany's. It is still undetermined yet at this point, but one thing is for certain, we will be going back to the films. And on the radio end of things, Tony Gross will be returning to talk a little bit of suspense. Um, and as far as the talk of Mel Blanc and Jack Benny, it is going to continue because there have been recent things that I've come across in my own research where I want to start telling some of these stories to you guys in small little forms or fashion. And you will also be getting more radio shows coming down the line because I'm not going to not share those. Uh, but until next time, folks, that's the that's all, folks. <laughs> This concludes tonight's
week's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>